Welcome to ABC Cafe, thought-provoking interviews with local Vermonters on politics, culture, and art, hosted by me, Anthony Apodaca. All right, I'm here with Zariah Hightower. She is on the Burlington City Council, and she works in international development. Zariah, thank you for taking time out of your, I'm sure, busy day to talk to me on ABC Cafe. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. I wanted to just sort of jump right into it um, because I'm assuming that when you signed up to run for city council last year, you would not, <laughs> in your wildest dreams, have assumed what was going to happen in the last few months happening. And that probably maybe some of your goals that you had going into office have been sort of hijacked by first COVID and then second the protests and mass uprising and movements um, against the the police state and the the um, killing of George Floyd, and I was just wondering, to what to what extent have you had to put those things on a, on the on what have you put on the back burner? And I'm assuming that defund the police was not one of your priorities uh, as you were running last year. Uh, yeah, so I'll start with the. Defunding the police was not one of my priorities. I did want, I did care. I mean, Burlington has had a string of problems with policing um, before I ran and it was part of the reason that I ran. So I did care about policing issues. I'm not going to say that I was an expert in it by any extent of imagination. And I've definitely learned a lot more about it since being on council. Um, yeah, but definitely wasn't expecting to dedicate this much time and energy to it, although to some extent I am glad um, being one of two black people on Burlington's council, being kind of the first woman of color on the council. Um, I think I am, given that the other black person on the council has taken um, a much more conservative stance on mm -hmm. um, policing and issues and reform, it's, I think it's been, ex I'm extremely grateful that I ran because I'm glad that there is a black person on the council who, um, you know, isn't drumming the drum of, oh, we just need to be more acceptable and they'll accept us. Um, right. So I'm glad that I ran in that. Otherwise, it would just be a bunch of white people telling the black person to defund <laughs> the police. <laughs> that would be pretty awkward. <laughs> that would have been really bad. Um, so yeah, so in that way, I am really glad I ran. There are some things that um, I mean, I cared, I talked a lot about housing um, and tenants rights and that hasn't, um, I don't know, I actually have no idea, given that it, this is the only reality on which I've existed in council. I don't know how much that's been on the back burner. Um, one of the committees I was in just passed Just Cause Eviction and we're hoping to get it on the ballot for November of this year, which, you know, like it would be great and a huge deal. I don't know how much more we would have done if this weren't the case versus how much council would have just been less work. So, um, and I'm also working on the back end a little bit on things like write a first refusal for tenants if somebody's um, trying to sell their building. So definitely still working on the housing stuff I cared about, spending way more time on public safety conversations than anticipated, but all in all, yeah, feel feel okay about it. <laughs> So actually, I was going to save the Burlington Tenant Union to the end, but since you sort of mentioned the housing stuff already, because I, I was reading through some of the recent meetings that, that you've had in the last couple of months, 
where you've had a lot of material from the Burlington Tenants Union. Um, and w you said the you just passed a, a, a just eviction. Mm -hmm. And when do you hope that will be on the ballot? Uh, we're hoping November. It could still be March. So a little bit TBD on that, but... And what about some of the other issues that the Burlington Tenant Union has been um, kind of, I guess, demanding? So one of the things that was interesting to me, I think, especially in light of what we'll talk about later with, with um, more of the policing aspect, but the uh, ban the box demand. So they're basically saying as to ban to make it illegal for landlords to have the following on the rental applications, asking for a criminal history of the pr prospective client, asking for the arrest history, asking for a background check, asking for credit score, and asking for more than two years of eviction notice. Is are are items like that gaining traction or are they are they what's the status? Yeah, um I know that we had a conversation on ban the box um in that same committee. I'm not honestly I'm not hundred percent sure where that ended up. I think I'm deaf I'm the most left person i'm just going to keep using left and right kind of as points <laughs> um on the committee and so to some extent like i i i think that's a pretty big one and an important one um but i it, i knew that for just cause eviction that was something that we were supposed to take up um you know from way back when and that at least one of the other committee members i was pretty sure broadly supported i think ban the box would be a great next thing to take up um but i could also be outvoted on the committee and then also um mm -hmm. on the council so i definitely want to take up things that just cause eviction was something i was more familiar with could argue for more easily um but um and do you think that because of COVID-19, people have been more receptive to that type of thing as opposed to two years ago when you could maybe make the argument that a different argument about eviction, where eviction seems to be more directly impacting more people for no uh, action of their own in, in a direct way that we can all see. Right. I actually think that the two things together, um, I think both looking at like having a new conversation about criminal justice and or injustice and having a conversation and having COVID, I think has opened, I hope, like people up to stories of like, yeah, that things like that things really are nobody's fault and things that happen to the, like situations that people are in aren't fault situations even when they're sometimes painted to be by the criminal justice system or by property owners. Um, and so that enhancing people's rights is usually a good idea. So both ban the box, which sometimes, you know, like people have contact with the criminal systems in ways that maybe like they're, it's not hundred percent not their fault, but sometimes isn't as much fault as people imagine it to be or so. Yeah, I think. Right. Both. I think people, I hope people are more open to voting yes on that. Well, it also, I think it takes away one of the pillars of conservative arguments, which is, you know, if the state is forcing you to stay home and not work, then, you know, <laughs> it's actually illegal to go to a job and pay pay rent. And, and so it kind of takes away, you know, it's not a very strong argument to begin with, but it does take away the argument of, 
oh, well, you're just being lazy or you shouldn't have gotten arrested in the first place or, you know, putting all of the blame on people who are in many cases kind of, you know, victimized by a system that they don't really have, they don't have control over any more than COVID in a lot of cases. Right, exactly. You said you were probably the most, like, or one of the more far left leaning people. Did you mean on the committee or on the council? On the committee. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then I was also going to say, do you find yourself sort of, uh, I'm going off script here. I had such great questions prepared, but (laughs) my improviser in me is taking over to respond more to what you say than to my um, pre-thought questions. But I've been wondering about this dynamic when you have, um, you know, different people on the political spectrum. Do you find yourself anticipating what people are going to complain about when you propose something or make certain types of arguments? And does that have a limiting effect on the types of things you feel emboldened to propose or try to defend? I'm imagining kind of like, do you think in advance, oh, I believe that we should ban the box, but like, I don't really know enough about it. And I'm pretty sure no one's going to go along with me. Therefore, I'm just going to go for this other thing. Um, I, I think that that, I wouldn't say that that's true of council. I think that's a little bit different in committee than it is in council because committee is much more of a conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas council, I almost feel like we talk too much in council for the fact that I don't think by the time we come to the council floor, I feel like a lot of people, the majority of people have already made up their minds on most things. I think there's something that maybe you haven't looked into so much um, where somebody could say something and be swayed, but especially on the bigger issues, so the ones we actually spend the most time talking about, there's, um, there's, I, I don't think there is much, there isn't as much need for conversation, even though those tend to have the longest conversations. Yeah, I've listened to a couple of them related to the police, like almost in full. And I was like, what am I even watching right now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I feel like, um, and then in terms of what I bring, the only resolution that I've been the lead sponsor on was the racial justice resolution. Mm-hmm. So on that, um, there was a lot of background debate that was happening. And so I was definitely ready. And this was also for the protection of some of my more right leaning. So some of the democratic sponsors, I just wanted to be ready for any attack because I wanted to make sure that they felt like they could support what I had said without weakening it. Um, So that was just me being, yeah. So in that case, I felt like I had to be ready with counterpoints Mm -hmm. um, and I was, but um, yeah, that was, that wasn't like, I felt like I couldn't bring something up that was like, I'm going to protect everyone who signed on to this with me because I don't want to see it change at all. Right. Yeah. You want to defend it if you're going to get behind something. That makes sense. I, and I can see being like more tedious or more conservative, not on the political spectrum, but just as like a, a tactic <laughs> to kind of make sure that your ducks are in a row before you sort of go forward with something um, so I actually have it with me right here, the uh, racial justice through economic and criminal justice. So I think I would like to ask you a few questions about this, which is what what are the origins of this? And I mean, what is it? What are the exciting parts to you or what, what were you most happy about through its passage? Yeah, I think so. The origins were. Um, I want to give a lot of credit to Jack Hansen and Mark Hughes, Mm because Jack really, I think, 
very early on was like, let's start this dialogue. Let's bring in community leaders so that we can have like a full dialogue. And so um, he was really good about kicking off that process, brought in Mark pretty early. And then um, I think at the beginning, it was really focused on policing, which I understand given, you know, the national conversation, the state conversation, the local conversation. Um, but I was actually really excited. I, the part that was the most important to me is the SROs, just because from like mm -hmm. previous interactions, I've just heard such awful stories about it. And I just don't want SROs to become normalized enough in Burlington that those stories start being told. And I think that's just a matter of time. I don't think that's, I don't believe in Burlington exceptionalism and that at all. Um, and, but some of the stuff that I was excited about is how do we invite a wider dialogue about public safety? So how do we stop just talking about policing and reform, which is a tired conversation that we've had for a long time. And how do we start talking about like, here's all the different ways that people need help and how do we start to produce that help? Um, and I think, I don't know how explicitly, I don't remember how explicitly the resolution did that, but that's what I was trying to do with that joint task force and having those community conversations and bringing in people like Spectrum and a new place and um, others to start talking about where are the gaps in the system that we're not filling, especially through policing and how do we fund those alternatives. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it was historic in several ways. I think one of the to me, most fascinating ways was how many people called in, right? I mean, because we at the DSA, we sent out emails. I know that so many groups were just like promoting like the same message to say, like, call in, call in, call in. And I don't know what the previous record was. I think it was like less than 300. So to have, you know, 1,200 plus people call in uh, to demand, basically all demand like the same three things, was was pretty incredible. I do want to talk about two of the things that people called in to demand, which were the immediate reduction of the Burlington police by 30% and firing Jason Bellavance, Corey Campbell, and Joseph Caro. And I know, I think from the beginning, well, let's just put it this way. Neither of those two things are in the resolution. And I was wondering if you could talk talk me through why and I just wanted a time like first with the, the attrition and then second with the with the officers yeah um and I think this is probably me being um a uh, I do think in a lot of ways I am a compromiser and so for me the immediacy was never a it just wasn't on the table because I don't think it's necessary i think like burlington will be surprised and you know like if you, if you hear bpd they were threatening this the whole time at how quickly attrition will happen um this isn't going to be you know like a three or four year process i think this will be um we'll get to 74 pretty quickly and so having making sure that it was the people who were retiring who were leaving or the people who didn't want to be there anymore was important to me because I do think that on an individual level, I just wouldn't want people to lose their jobs during COVID and everything else, even if they are. I don't, I don't hate those. I don't hate the police individually. Yeah, um, it's not. An, I, yeah, that's an important thing to to stay. I mean, I don't. I think that sometimes that gets missed. So it's important to 
restated. It's like I'm 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 I was against the war in Iraq. I don't hate people in the military. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I think it's not it's unfortunate that that people take it that way. Um and there are some people who I think do actually hate individual police and hate all police and uh, that's not me though. Yeah, and so I definitely I do think I do believe police unions are different from different unions and negotiate differently and all that, but I didn't necessarily want to pass a resolution that would cause someone to immediately lose their job. Um, and then on the... Even if 1,200 people call in to demand that? Even I, if 1,200 people call in with the understanding, if if I had not known that this was going to be, if I had thought this could take three or four years, and that was actually what I was fighting, is people, once people saw the resolution, counselors pretty quickly found out just how quick attrition would be and how quickly we would get down to 74. Mm -hmm. And then the thought was, no, this can't be, we have to give this a timeline. And I'm like, Nope. The purpose is to get to 74 as soon as possible with, while hurting as few like individuals as possible. And so if people leave, like that's on them. And if that happens in six months, then honestly, right. that to me is a good thing, not something we need to. Yeah, I think um, what was missing in some of the public discussion or maybe I personally just missed it, but I think it was pers it was definitely missed with some of us in the DSA uh, that the timeline could potentially be much quicker because it was sort of like no one knew what the timeline was. And so it was kind of, uh, and that's sort of the origins of the question where it seemed to be like two things happening, you know, one is a mass movement to call for this immediate urgent thing. And the other one being like, maybe it'll happen in like five years. <laughs> so, it, you know, I've been, this is, uh, I've been thinking about this for some time, but yeah. It's yeah, no, that's fair. It sounds like by the end of this month, we'll have lost three police officers already. So, um, which again, I consider to be a positive. <laughs> so um, I don't, I really, given like some of the ways that like over the past, the rates of like, which we've like had to retrain new police officers to replace ones that have moved on to their locations, things like that. I doubt that this will take a year. Right. And then the second one was about firing uh, specifically named officers. Oh, yeah. We just weren't. We weren't allowed to say it. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. So legally, and so it was because like... Because of the union and the contracts and stuff? Yeah. Le it's a frustrating process because the council has zero decision-making authority on firing officers. So we're not... We can't fire any officers at all. But at the same time, somehow... If we say that they should be fired, um, that would cause a potential. That would be a cause for a lawsuit, even though we don't have the ability to fire them. Um, so right. we aren't allowed to make statements about the three officers. I get it. I won't <laughs> ask you to make a statement about anybody. <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit about maybe the roots of systemic racism as you see it, because some of this language, and and I guess this is to preface this question, there's a large a debate ongoing in this country, especially on the left, and it's, there's two extremes. One is class reductionism, one is race reductionism. I think it's important for me personally to, to, to be able to look at both of the interplay between those things and I'm not a person that says, oh, it's just class or whatever. 
Um, but I did want to ask, because the first sentence in this resolution is, uh, whereas systemic racism is at the heart of our economy and continues to adversely impact uh, BIPOC people across all systems of society. And I guess it's that phrase, like, heart of the economy. And then there's some other language in here about, like, explore the roots of systemic oppression. Is this a statement against capitalism? And where are you on that line in, in terms of thinking through uh, the economic exploitation of, of people and, like, the origin of, of racial oppression in this country? Yeah, I definitely, I don't, I know that there's, I've gone to some of the like DSA meetings and I definitely, I find them to be hard to follow. Cause I feel like it's like, if you don't know the lingo and you don't know the authors, like people will just keep going. And I honestly don't know all of the lingo and all of the people, but I definitely feel, sorry, that's not a dumb, <laughs> that's an aside. Um, oh yeah, I, no, that's fine. And I would <laughs> say that I agree. There are a few people that tend to talk predominantly and they have been in the movement for decades and and they are well read and it's I'm trying to catch up on my reading list but it's still just kind of like what are you talking about <laughs> right and so I think the thing is I guess I believe that like the entire system that we have is um problematic both like along racial lines around economic lines. And I think council has been a little bit of an exercise in, I don't strongly believe in like a full on revolution. I think a lot of people who talk about like, oh, like let's start a revolution or people who have never been food insecure or housing insecure, um, or at least the ones that I've heard it from are predominantly not. And so I, there's this like delicate balance of like trying to unravel the system that we're all part of and like, don't like, can't, we can't like set our, ourselves outside of and see what parts of it we can grab and unravel um, without hurting people who are kind of like on the fringes. And so it's, this is maybe a bigger question or bigger answer to the question that you're asking for, but I do feel like being in this position at this time with like all these other progressives, especially like the younger frogs really is trying to figure out like what we can remove from the system when we know that it needs to change without hurting people who have been historically hurt over and over again. Mm -hmm. Can you give me an example of that? Just I. Yeah, so it's um, it's things like, and here me, and this is this isn't a great example because I feel very good about um, my decision on that, and I think so. There's some clarity there where I feel like in other places there's not clarity. So to me, there was clarity in removing the SROs. So right. the school resource officers to some extent like have reduced a lot of you know like it's nice to have someone who's advocating for you right so if there you have an interaction with a police officer which um you know black and brown youth in our city are more likely to have then if the police officer instead of acting on their first judgment which if you're black and brown is tends to be harsher first calls an sro and they advocate on your behalf that's a good thing. And so if you're like looking at the system and say, oh, like there's all this like police officers and they're problematic and especially in schools is, you know, like, and it like starts to create this kind of behavior and we need to remove that. But at the same time, we don't want to remove this like protection level for black and brown youth 
there it's really clear to see, okay, we'll take them out, put in another advocate. <laughs> um, that's an mm -hmm. easy kind of way to do it. But if you're looking at a bigger system, like things like the airport, um, we've had a lot of discussion about this is, do we want to have an airport? What does that do to the climate? Like, you know, do, like, are we having fewer emissions because people aren't driving as far before they fly? Are we having more emissions because it's so convenient that people are flying more often? If it's not convenient, <laughs> are we like removing it from people like who maybe need to fly, but then don't have access to it? So there's like all these questions of we want to change the system, but it's hard to know the impact of change when the system hasn't really fundamentally been changed in a way that works for like, you know, minorities, like LGBTQ, like low working class or like. Well, I think that could be one way that Burlington Tenants Union is is right on because you have you have basically their 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 general push is sort of decommodifying housing. So when you look at, you know, if you're if you're decommodifying people's basic needs, then you're making attempts to remove them from from the private market and from from profit-driven incentives which I think are always going going to hurt people. Um and I don't know where the airport fits in. I hadn't. I've never thought about the airport before. I just fly. <laughs> just fly out of it. But yeah, no, I think you're right. But it's hard to know what that looks like on a city level. I think most of these yeah. discussions tend to be had at a national level. Whereas, yeah, they can be really because, like, when you're like, oh, if you do this here, how does that if like, you know, it has it starts out the questions of competing with South Burlington or Winooski or. Things right, like that. and that's a that's an interesting question because all almost all of these discussions are really had at the national level, and so and partly why I wanted to have you on and why I started this podcast actually is to really engage locally with how like lofty ideas and and people's philosophical you know starting points actually translate into you know material conditions on the ground locally and so it's a really but it's an interesting question so i'm gonna actually i'm gonna read something and i want to come at the if you don't mind come at the same type of question but from like a slightly different angle um just because yeah. i i mean it's just a, a section uh which i just finished reading this book uh for the first time it's called um from black lives matter to black liberation by kanga yamada taylor and i i think I don't know if this this helps maybe it helps me clarify like what I'm actually trying to ask because she is 10 times more eloquent than I am uh, but basically uh, she's talking about kind of when we don't talk about class at all um, the, she, she writes that the concepts of solidarity and unity are reduced to whether or not one chooses to be an ally there's nothing wrong with being an ally but it doesn't quite capture the degree to which black and white workers are inextricably linked. It's not as if white workers can simply choose not to ally with black workers to no peril of their own. The scale and attack on the living standards of working class is overwhelming. There is a systemic bipartisan effort to dismantle the already anemic welfare state. Um, when in 2013, five billion was cut from food stamps, it had the a direct impact on the lives of tens of millions of white working class people. In this context, solidarity is not just an option, it is crucial to workers' ability to resist the constant degradation of their living standards. And then she writes, this is kind of the conclusion of the book, uh, can there be black liberation in the United States as the country is currently constituted? No. 
Capitalism is contingent on the absence of freedom and liberty for black people and anyone else who does not directly benefit from its economic disorder. And so as we're looking at like city politics, you know, to what extent is there a danger in not addressing the sort of fundamental capitalist exploitation of people as the root cause or as a basis for solidarity in building like a multiracial movement uh, to push back against some of these policies? Um, I think there is a danger, but I don't think we're doing that danger. I think that yeah, that I wasn't implying that you were. I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I didn't think you were. Um, I, I think, and this is, and Miss, sorry, I'm going to take it personal instead of maybe what you're looking for, which is like urban policy, because it's like to some extent. Um, I know that having grown up like relatively, or at least when I lived in Oklahoma, like my family was relatively poor and the way that people interacted with me then versus how they interact with me now, like when I'm whatever, like an Ivy educated, um, like I fit a profile now of like, oh, and I, it's amazing to me the way that people would like treat me absolutely differently now. There is a class like thing where it's just like, yeah, oh, put, fine. Put, put Yale by your name and all of a sudden people respect you. Right. Yeah. And so there's like this weird. And so this like, so to me, like, um, like class struggle and all this has been like such a like, like very real, very tangible thing because it's like, oh, my blackness does become acceptable to you and less terrifying um, when it's like wrapped in like a middle class package, basically. Um, but there's also like, and I mean, I think everybody knows this. So I hate to like state the obvious, obvious. It's like there's an intersectionality. And if we just talk about like class and capitalism without talking about like what it means to be black and like all the history and storytelling and um, like the very real like trauma that like, like ex, like the ancestors of ex slaves carrying their body, then it's like those aren't. Those are two conversations that need to be had at the same time. Right, exactly. And I think I, I be, we'll, we'll wrap up soon, but I think sometimes when there's... So, for example, there's a lot of talk about disparity and and sort of like, okay, well, if you're, if you're black in the city of Burlington, you're two times more likely to get pulled over by the cops, right? So, but would it be a fair and equal society if everyone got pulled over at the same rate? <laughs> Or, you know, we have like 2 million people in jail in this country. Would it be just if they were represented across race <laughs> equally? Or is, the re is there a different problem, right? If you're more likely to die in an interaction with a uh, police officer when you're black, it doesn't change the fact that like the cops kill a lot of white people too. And mm -hmm. so the it's not like an all lives matter claim. It's a claim on building solidarity and actually pointing the the gaze of our our uh, struggle like in a collective direction to be like maybe the problem is that just cops kill people and they're racist <laughs> you know what i mean like it's it's sort of an improv yes and move as i see it not like an either or which is we're gonna we're gonna take that reality and we're adding to it to make like the strongest possible argument right yeah and i think there's i mean depending on how you build a movement um 
there's this thing of, do we look at the big picture? But lots of times the big picture is the easiest picture. So if you're talking about, mm -hmm. I mean, this is like the definition of intersectionality. It's like, if you're talking about, you know, like the wage gap, do you put like, you know, like a professional white woman as the like, you know, um, face of the wage gap, or do you put, you know, like, you know, like a black queer person who's working at like a fast food, you know, like, it's like, who are you making the face of? And so in this, like, yes, it's, I would encourage us to continue to look at like the black data, just because it's like, you risk, if you talk, if you make the focus too big, then you risk having the picture be um, all of the white people who have died at the hands of police, which is shitty and that sucks. But if you are like, oh, like, how do we fix that? Then you could come up with a system that still allows um, violence to be committed against black bodies. Whereas if you're like, how do we fix violence committed against black bodies? Then chances are you've created a system that probably has violence against nobodies. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess maybe it's just a question of why do you have to choose? Why is it like one way or the other? Like, we, we don't need to have like, like if I was going to make your analogy sort of implies that I can only make one poster for police brutality. <laughs> like I have to choose whose face is going to be on it. But like, I think even you're just saying like, this is absolutely nuts. Like you're three times more likely to die and you're black. They're killing not just black people, but like everybody else. Like this is a real problem. And I would say just sort of because I come from like a pretty white evangelical conservative background that from a tactical perspective, people are going to be more on board with with a broadening out of that claim, I think. Um, like building I, a co because they're also be like the poor, poor white communities are also being oppressed in different ways but they are they are being oppressed and um yeah right and i think there's two different schools of thought on that where i can hear a lot of you know like my black activist friends saying that if they can't see themselves in me if my face is on the poster like i don't know if we're allowed to curse on this but then like fuck them like right like oh my god now i have to delete the whole recording <laughs> jesus christ raya <laughs> Like, that's not my, if they can't see, like, why do I have to be the one to explain to them that we're in this together? And so, oh, yeah, no, I'm get that. Yeah. Right. And that, but then the other side of it is, I think that the more, like, I don't think there's a wrong side of this. I think I probably fall somewhere in the middle is sometimes I say, fuck them. And sometimes I'm like, oh, like, let's, let's, let's pull everyone in because we're all in the same boat. So, um, and I think it, I don't think there's a right answer to that I think it depends on you're talking about and how much common ground you can find with them right what are you doing next what's for for city council you've solved <laughs> you've solved racism and you've solved the, <laughs> you've solved the uh eviction notice what what are you gonna what what's next on the things that are that we're concerned with yeah no i think those two things are actually gonna be a big part of um or how are you following up with those actions? I mean, specifically with the council thing, this is, you can't just make a, a resolution and call it good. I mean, it's going to be like, I don't know how many decades you were planning on spending in Burlington City Council, but it's <laughs> going to be the rest of your life, I think, to, to fighting for these things, um, uh, for all of us to fight for these things. So how do you, 
at least do you have any things where you're like, yeah, we got to follow through with like X, Y, and Z. Those are sort of like the next things to tackle on the horizon. Yeah, I definitely think everything that's in the racial justice resolution is like none, none of it's done, right? Like all of it was just like, we will do this. And just because something's on the book, like does not mean it'll happen. So like every single one of those things is now like, like how do we take this and run with this? So like um, on the, you know, on the like task force to like look at an apology and reparations, um, like, you know, like Taisha Dinger are the racial equity inclusion directors, like doing a good job of being like, what should that look like? And Perry's bringing a resolution forward on that. And then um, on the like joint committee, like I'm already being like, I don't just want us to have a, you know, an assessment of the police. Like I don't, that's not going to tell us how to fix our problem. It's going to tell us how to get rid of some of our problems, but like, how do we start another conversation and so like that joint committee and what they'll be doing. So I, yeah, so both on babysitting all the SRO stuff, like in one, you know, like the SRO, the school's supposed to come back um, and give us like some alternatives and what they're thinking and making sure that that's not just, oh, we decided this was too hard. We'll just give the SROs for the next five years. Right. So all those need babysitting at the same time, like, you know, other economic justice stuff needs to go through, whether that's race neutral or race forward. Um, so yeah, a lot of work to do in the next two years. I don't know how long I'm going to be on council. I keep saying I should stop saying that because maybe I'll have two people running against me in two years if I do decide to run again. But um, I'm definitely going to get as much done as I can in this term. Um, when, when is the term end? Summer 2021. Okay, great. So by then we'll all be back to normal. We'll have a vaccine for COVID and the world will be. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> Hopefully I'll be, I'll we're be, I'll be normal. flying out of the airport. <laughs> <laughs> uh, great. Zariah, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a really lovely conversation. Please don't close down the airport. I hate driving <laughs> to Montreal. <laughs> And actually, we can't leave if it would be if right now we can't even go to Canada. So it'd be if, you know, a four hour drive to Boston. So you just get to hang out in Vermont. Why would you ever leave? <laughs> yeah, I am enjoying my time in Vermont. I travel a lot for work for the last 10 years and it's nice to have some quiet time. But um, yeah, so thank you for joining the podcast. I know that you have a lot to do and it's it's been a great pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me and it's good to connect with you again.